So today we're in 1 Peter once again. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5 today. I'm sure most of you guys in here, maybe not everybody, but I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with Pastor Tim Stevens in Canada. He's uh, one of the, I believe it's four pastors so far that have been arrested. Tim is, uh, I, I know some people who know Tim, and supposedly he's just a super guy. Super, super guy, godly man, uh, pastors a biblical church. He's pastor of Fairview Baptist Church, not the one up in Edmond, but the one in Calgary, Alberta. And so, just a little bit about the situation. He's been arrested for a second time. He just got out, I don't know, a few weeks ago. He wasn't in long. But this time he was arrested for holding an outdoor service that, that went against the uh, violation of Alberta's health orders. He was offered bail, conditional upon his agreement to abide by the public health orders, much like James Coates was. But he, he, he could not agree because um, it would prevent him in his eyes, I think rightly so, from, from shepherding the flock. We've been commanded to shepherd the flock. And so as a result, he sits in jail. He will remain in custody until his next court date on June 28th. I got this information off of his Facebook page, some information that his wife was putting on there. Listen to uh, his wife, I believe, I believe it's pronounced Raquel. Raquel? R-A-C-U-E-L? Raquel, okay. Raquel Stevens. So this is uh, a quote from her. She says, We are shaken, but our faith is not. <clears throat> we are sorrowful, sorrowful, but always rejoicing. She said, As I prayed with the saints tonight, I couldn't help sense their joy at the opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. She said, in God's providence, Tim's imprisonment will strengthen us in the faith and embolden us to love and obey Christ no matter the cost. Guys, that sounds like a very mature believer who's got a great perspective. And I share this because it really, it, it, it's really uh, synonymous of what we're looking at here in Peter. Peter's, Peter's writing this letter again to, to comfort these believers who have been scattered uh, who are facing persecution that we looked at last week from Nero. And then she says this, Tim's wife says this, pray for Tim to stand firm. So if you want to know how to pray for Tim, Pastor Tim, here it is, coming from his wife. Pray for Tim to stand firm that he would, that he would meditate on the love of Christ. It's much of what we're going to be talking about today. That he would meditate on these things. He would meditate on the love of Christ and His sacrifice for sinners. That He would be comforted in His chains. And she said, pray for His release. You know, and I, and I didn't mention, he, they came to His house last week to arrest Him. For meeting outside. And, and like we talked about last week, guys, that, that stuff is, it's just north of us. And... Make no mistake, you know. Her, I didn't write it down, but her wife or his wife was saying things along the lines of, she, "They were asking the officers, have you broken these violations?' Oh yeah, many times, and other political leaders had. But um, but you see a man being arrested for meeting outside 
Uh, it's just... It's really sad to see, but, but, but did you hear her language though? Just her, you know, they're sorrowful but rejoicing. And so that's, she's, she's got the idea. And, and that's what, you know, I want you to hear that. Um, because that's what this letter we're looking at is all about Peter's letter. It's just having that mindset as we move forward in our culture that's going to become increasingly, increasingly, um, you know, against us, against Christ. And so... Why don't we go ahead and uh, before we start, let's let's pray for Pastor Tim, and um, so let's, let's just pray for him, our brother and his family, and the church. Father, we, we come to you, Lord, and we uh, we lift up our brother, Pastor Tim Stevens, to you, Lord, who sits in a sits in a jail right now, sits in a prison for uh, attempting to shepherd his flock faithfully. And so, Father, we just thank you uh, for his faithfulness. Lord, we do pray that you will use him in that in that prison cell, Lord. That he will that he will faithfully um, be used by you, like Pastor James was, Lord. And um, that as a result of this, Father, that ultimately his church will grow, and that that sinners will be brought to Christ through this, Father. That that the world will see this church that loves one another, that loves your word, that loves their pastor, Lord. And so, Father, we just ask these things in Your name. We pray that You would comfort him. Pray that You would comfort his wife and their children and, and, this, and this church body, Lord. Rest Your blessings upon them, God, and use them. Use them mightily during this time, God. May they be, may they be an example to us and really um, Christians around the world as well as the world itself, Lord. What a, what a true church of Jesus Christ looks like, Father. So, Lord, we thank You and praise You in Christ's name. And I also forgot to mention they, they've taken that church's building away as well. Just like they did Pastor Coates. So just keep them in your prayers. And so guys, if you, uh, if you have your Bibles, I, I would ask you to stand. We're going to look at verses 3 through 5 today, but I'm going to read down through verse 12. Okay? I'm going to read down through verse 12. Remember, Peter is comforting these believers with the truth. Which is exactly what Tim's wife was, um, you know, just pray, you know, pray that Tim will meditate on the truth. It's the same principle. So let's read verses 1 through 12 because that, basically that's what Peter's doing all the way down through verse 12. The first imperative is not until verse 13. So really, it's just truth he's sharing with them down through verse 12. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 
So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. You guys can be seated. Yeah, I discovered this week in my preparation that in the Greek it's one sentence all the way from uh, verses 3 down through 9. Or maybe it's verse 1 through 9. But you see a period break in our English version so I was debating on whether to go down through verse 9, but uh, we'll save that for next time. We'll probably do 4 through 9. But. So today we're going to look at verses 3 through 5. And so I just want to start with a proposition to you guys, and I'll, and I'll announce, I'll repeat this throughout the sermon, really with each point. And the proposition is this. We see it really in verse, in verse 3. Our God is blessed, and He is worthy to be praised. That's the proposition I make to you. Our God is blessed and He is worthy to be praised. This is a doxology, by the way. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so point number one, really we're going to have four points today and they're, going to, they're, they're basically going to answer in this text why our God is blessed. Or, or you know, why, should, why is He blessed and why is He worthy to be praised? Obviously, if we were just talking in general, He's worthy to be praised because of who He is. Amen? He's the one true God. He said, Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. He's worthy to be praised simply because of who He is. But in this text, verses 3-5, through five, we're going to look at three reasons why our God is blessed and He is worthy to be praised. Reason number one is right there in verse 3. Of what it says, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. That's going to be point number one. He's worthy to be praised because He has caused us to be born again. But before we look at that, guys, real quickly, let's look at who it is that caused us to be born again. Let's look real closely at who it is. We see it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who caused us to be born again. He was referred to in the Old Testament as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Right? To, to, to clearly di- differentiate Himself from the false gods, the idols of the land. And now we see in the New Testament He is distinctly referred to as the Christian God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's how we see Him entitled here in the New Testament. The name the Lord Jesus Christ, familiar title, uh, 
just remember each word has a meaning, okay? When we see when we see Christ referred to as the Lord, it's just the idea that He is God, that He is the sovereign ruler. Okay? When we think of the name Jesus, it's reminding us that He is our Savior. Right? Remember what the angel told told Mary? Or told uh, Joseph, you shall name him Jesus, Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. And then the Christ, meaning the anointed Messiah King, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is real important. Calvin says this, Whosoever then seeks really to know the only true God must regard Him as the Father of Christ. For whenever our mind seeks God, except Christ be thought of, it will wonder and be confused until it be wholly lost. I would add to Calvin's, which he's saying the exact same thing, but I would add, they'll remain in darkness apart from Christ, right? They're going to remain in darkness. Which is what he's saying. Confused. Till they're wholly lost because they're in darkness. We know this. Who did Jesus say He was? The light of the world, right? The light has come into the world. He is the light. John 12.46, He said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in Me, listen to this, will not remain in darkness. You see what that's telling us? Outside of Christ, we're in darkness. And then 1 John 2.23, we, really, we could really preach on this for a long time. Just this whole idea that the only way to the Father is through Christ. But listen to 1 John 2.23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Is this not crystal clear language? It's crystal clear, right? And it's not, it's not, we didn't make this up. This is not our opinion. This comes straight from the Scriptures. This is not my opinion or any of our opinions. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way. Did He say I am one of the ways? No, He said I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So amen to what Calvin said. Obviously. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we see in this verse here? In verse 3. Really back to our, back to our point number 1. The first reason we see that God is worthy to be praised is because He has caused us to be born again. So what do we see in this verse? We see that God is the active one in begetting us. Okay, He is the active one. In other words, that's what the... The, the NAS and I believe the ESV both say, phrase it, He has caused us to be born again. What is that saying? You didn't cause yourself to be born again. Just like you didn't cause yourself to be born the first time. I'm hoping I can get some more ameners in this church. <laughs> I don't want to amen myself. <laughs> so I just want to give you the... I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but hey... It's okay. If you okay, if you want to save me and say it. That's <laughs> uh, funny. But no, He has caused us to be born again, okay? Now we are passive in our natural birth. Are we not? We're passive. You didn't cause yourself to be born. I, I would say God caused you to be born the first time too. And so we are passive in our spiritual birth as well. That's what, that's what we see in this, in this text. What we see in this text, guys, is the order of salvation. 
That's really what we see. The Ordo Salutis in Latin. We see part of the part of the order of salvation. What causes a person to be born again? Is it, is it through that person believing and making a decision? That's not what the text says. God causes us to be born again. Listen to Jeremiah 13.23. You know, I had a sermon... All my sermon illustrations aren't here today. I really did. I had... I got one of them, Jamie, back here, but Dylan was going to be one. I know we love each other in this church. I know this church, we're not woke, right? We love each other. We know there's one race. So we can have fun with one another. But listen to Jeremiah 13.23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question by no means, right? Think about that. It doesn't matter how hard Jamie tried to change his skin to look like Dylan's, it ain't going to happen. Or Dylan tried to change his skin and look like his wife's. It's not going to happen. He's making an obvious statement. Or the leopard at spots. Alright, young people. Could a leopard just decide, you know, I don't like these spots anymore. I want stripes like a tiger. <laughs> Anybody? Anybody want to guess? Could a leopard do that? No. And that's the point. Listen to, the, listen to the second half of the verse. The prophet Jeremiah says, so obviously the answer is no, right? Ethiopian can't change his skin. Leper can't change his spots. He says, then also, or then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The Bible says that we as fallen people are evil. <laughs> okay? Let's just be honest. That's what Jesus said to His own disciples. We are fallen. We are born in sin. The same prophet, and a few chapters later, is the one who says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And so what he's saying is, you have as much power to change your nature, your sin nature, your evil heart, as an animal does his spots. Or as the Ethiopian does his skin. Only God does that through the new birth. When He causes us to be born again. When He gives us Right? The new heart. The heart of flesh. In other words, this text is screaming that God is sovereign in salvation. He causes us to be born again. That's what Jesus meant when He told Nicodemus, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. That's what this is talking about. The order of salvation. First John, not First John, the Gospel of John 1.12. Talking about becoming the children of God, Right? It says, but those who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Okay? Not because of blood. Not because of the will of man. Or any of these things. But because they were born of God. So we see that in this text. That God caused us to be born again. That should drive us to our knees, beloved. And to... to, to, to cry out to God in thanksgiving that He was so merciful to us. And that's what we see in this text. What's His motive for doing this? And remember guys, Peter is comforting these believers who are under severe persecution and the intensity is just increasing during this time. The persecution they're under. So we see that that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who Here's his motive, guys. What's his motive? 
according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. What was His motive? Mercy. Not just mercy, but great mercy. The word great has the idea of both quantity and quality. So there's plenty of mercy, okay? God's not lacking in mercy, and it's excellent or rich. It's a rich mercy. Mercy, guys, is for those in a pitiful condition. Do you know that? That's who mercy's for. Listen to Revelation 3.17. Jesus talking to the church at Laodicea. He says, You say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. In other words, guys, sinners are in a pitiful condition, whether they realize it or not. And so this mercy is for those, obviously, who realize it. Because everybody outside of Christ is in a pitiful position. Like the church at Laodicea. It, it, it's the same ones who, 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 who uh, the Scripture says there are those who are clean in their own eyes but have not been washed of their filth. That's a picture of our world, is it not? People just they think they're clean, they think they're good. But this mercy is for those, it's not just for those in a pitiful condition, like we've talked about a lot, but those who realize their pitiful condition. That's who the mercy of God is for. Listen to Romans 9, 15-16. We really, we really see God's mercy, and again, and, and the fact that He's the one who who causes us to be born again here. Romans 9, 15 and 16. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on the mercy of God. That gets back to the point we made a while ago. That it's, it's not according to man's decision, man's ability. It's God in His mercy that causes us to be born again. Obviously through His Gospel being proclaimed. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Really the same language we hear in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Who made us alive? God made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. God made us alive together in Christ. And I love this at the very end of that verse, by grace you have been saved. In other words, do you want to know what it looks like to be saved by grace? This is what it looks like. That you were dead and God made you alive. That's grace. That's grace. Amen. Thank you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, so the first thing we see, God is worthy to be praised because He has caused us to be born again. The second thing we see in verse 4, God is, worthy, God is blessed and worthy to be praised because of our inheritance. Because of our inheritance. Verse 4, <clears throat> He says, "...to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you." So the Webster's Dictionary of 1828 says this, this uh, defining uh, inheritance. 
the estate or possession which may descend to an heir. Okay? In case there's somebody in here who wasn't familiar with what an inheritance was, it's an estate or possession which may descend to an heir. We'll talk about that more here in a minute. Another definition I read, it's a gift based on a relationship, not a wage for a performance, not earned. In the Old Testament, the promised land, the land of Canaan, was Israel's inheritance, or a portion of Canaan belonging to each tribe or family as its share. But as Romans 8 says, guys, I believe it's around verses 17-18, uh, being adopted as God's children, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So our inheritance is not a physical land. It's not a physical land, but the eternal city of God. That same celestial city that Christian is marching towards in the Pilgrim's Progress. That's our inheritance. Fully and finally. And what do we see? We see, uh, is it three things or four things? We see, yeah, we see four things about this inheritance in verse 4. First of all, it says, which is imperishable. That just means it's not subject to decay. Okay, this, this inheritance that we have reserved for us. It's, it's not subject to decay. It's the same word. This, this word imperishable is the same word used to speak of God and it's used to speak of our future resurrected bodies. Imperishable. Secondly, this inheritance is undefiled, we see in verse 4. What does that mean, guys? It's unstained by sin. Do you long for the day when you do not have to battle sin. And you know, and I think somebody who's truly converted, it's not, it's not even the sins of the world, it's my own sin. I'll just be glad when we're done with sin. We're just done with it. Guys, in that inheritance, it is undefiled. The new heavens and the new earth will be undefiled. Listen to what Revelation 21-27 says. A promise. This is talking about that celestial city. It says, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Undefiled. That will be the final stage of our salvation when we are in our glorified bodies and delivered from the very presence of sin. I long for that day. And, 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 and those who are truly born again, they, we hate sin. We hate, our, we hate sin in the world. But we hate our own sin. Sin is just, God hates it. We hate it. It gets weary battling it. And one day, beloved, we'll be in that inheritance. There will be no more sin. Thirdly, we see it's unfading. The NAS says, will not fade away. But the idea that it's unfading. It will never wither. Listen to this language, guys. It will never wither. It will never grow dim or lose its beauty. Have you ever done a lot of house repairs, you know, and, and you know you get things looking nice and things that just kind of fade away? Good look good looking paint. Eventually, hey, the nursery looks great, ladies. Amen. But eventually, if we stayed here long enough, things just fade away. That's part of the fallen world we live in. Not in this inheritance, guys. It will never wither, never grow dim, never lose its beauty. On the contrary, listen to this. Listen to James 1.11 on the contrary to what I just read you. James 1.11 says, For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. 
and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. The things of this world, obviously he gives us a picture here. The grass withers, it falls away. But so will that man who is rich and not living for the kingdom of God, like that fool in Luke chapter 12, I believe it is. All of that stuff's going to fade away, guys. It's going to fade away. It's going to lose its beauty. Right? We're not to be pursuing just outward beauty. It's all going to fade away. Okay? But these eternal things, they're not going to fade away. Not going to lose its beauty. And then lastly, we see this inheritance is reserved. It's reserved. It says, reserved in heaven for you. If you're Christ, it's reserved for you. You have a reservation. Is it not a relief, guys, and a comfort? Think of, think of times you've made reservations maybe months out in advance. Is there not always a little bit of anxiety? Is it, you know, they, have they kept my reservation? Have they lost it? Isn't it a comfort? It's a relief. Okay, yes, we still, we still got that room reserved. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you guys ever been on the opposite end of it? They lost your reservation? It's <laughs> just how frustrating it is. You know, you, you've reserved something months ahead and then they lose it just due to human error. Okay, not so with this inheritance. It is reserved in heaven for you if you're Christ. That, 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 that word reserved, listen to the language here of what it means. Guarded. And you've got to remember who's reserving it, right? It's guarded or watched over. It's an already existing inheritance being carefully guarded in heaven. No possibility of human error. No possibility of losing this inheritance. Similar to the language of Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moths nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's safe, guys. Your inheritance in heaven is being reserved right now for you. It's protected. It's protected by, by our omnipotent God. And so, beloved, our inheritance is far superior to that of the Old Covenant. That earthly land, it was not kept for them, but rather taken from them in the exile through their disobedience. In the, in the, the Assyrians, through the Assyrians, through the through the Babylonian exile, and later in AD 70 by Roman occupation. All part of the curses when you look back at Deuteronomy for disobedience. And even while in the land, it only produced rewards that eventually decayed and all its glory faded away. Even the beauty of the promised land was defiled by sin. So you see guys, even this, even these things was a picture of a type, a shadow of our eternal inheritance that is found in Christ. Found in Jesus Christ. So thirdly, in verse 5, our, our God is blessed and worthy to be praised because He's protected us. In verse 5, He's protected us. It says, who are protected 
by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our God is worthy to be praised because He has protected us. How has He protected us? Well, we see it right there in the first part of verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God. We're protected by His power. That word protected is a military term, okay? It's really important to understand this. Hopefully I can make it clear. It's a military term, guys. It can mean two things. To protect someone from danger or to prevent someone from escaping. Okay, you hear that? You hear the double side of that? It's real important. I'll try to tie it together why it's important. Listen to John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. Jesus talking about His sheep. Him being the shepherd, the great shepherd. He said, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give eternal life to them. First of all, what kind of life does He give? Eternal life. How long does eternal last? Forever. When do you receive it? When you believe, when you're converted. That's real important. When you start dealing with people that say, oh no, you can lose it. It's eternal. And we don't gain it then, we gain it now. And he says, they will never perish. (laughs) Sometimes we just read over this. It's so simple. They will what? Perish? Never perish. Eternal life, never perish. How can you be more clear than that? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My, have, you, have you heard that argument? Well, but you can jump out of His hand. Okay, we've got to get back to what that word protected means. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Why? It gets back to our word. Because we are protected. What does that word mean? To protect someone from danger and to prevent someone from escaping. This whole idea of jumping out of his hand, <laughs> it's laughable. But you see how even this word that we're looking at today, when you look at what it really means, we are protected from escaping. We're protected from escaping his hands, we're protected from danger. From the outside, from some, from somebody snatching us out of his hands, and then literally, and then clearly, just the clear language of John ten itself: eternal life, never perish. We're in his hands; nobody can snatch us. So, guys, be comforted in that, and remember that when somebody throws that that argument at you. So, we're protected by the power of God. By, by the power of God, guys. Um, just the idea, guys, of our, our, our perseverance does not reside in our, in our free will. Okay? But in the power of God. In other words, we're not going to muster it to the end. But we're going to be faithful to the end just because I'm more faithful than Justin. Now, we're going to be faithful to the end, both Justin and I, if we're Christ, because of the power of God. Listen to Psalm 94.18. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness will hold me up. Jude 24. The great benediction of Jude 24. 
Now to Him who is able, this is speaking of God's omnipotence, His power. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The idea is stumbling into apostasy. From walking away from Christ. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. Do you see who's going to keep us to the end, guys? It's our God by His power. He's going to keep us blameless. Why will we be blameless at the end? Because we are without sin? No. Because of His imputed righteousness that He has imputed to our account through faith in Jesus Christ. And He will protect that to the very end. And so, we are protected by the power of God by what means? Is our next question. In verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith. Through faith. Um, Just one second. I'm going to read it couple paragraphs out of our confession here in just a moment. So the means that He uses to protect us is through faith. Our faith is the evidence of His keeping power. Okay, It's the evidence of His keeping power. It's an enduring, persevering faith. Why? Because God preserves us by His power. So again, our faith is the means that God uses to protect us or, or guard us. In other words, guys, His power both supplies and energizes our faith to the very end. Our faith came from Him, Ephesians 2, and these texts we've been looking at, through His power, He energizes us to the end. Listen to what our confession says. In... Um, Chapter 17, on the perseverance of the saints. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs. But listen to the language of this, guys. That's why it's, it's really good to be confessional. And, and as well, you can see that I am uh, that our doctrine is consistent with our confession here. He says, those, those God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given given the precious faith of His elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, He still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. The felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them for a time through their unbelief and the temptations of Satan. Yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation. Where they will enjoy their purchased possession. For they are engraved on the palms of His hands, and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. This perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on the unchangeableness of the decree of election, 
which flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. It is based on the efficacy of the, of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. The certainty, certainty and infallibility of their perseverance is based on all these things. Guys, salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. He keeps us. He protects us. And so what has He protected us for? In verse 5, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's protected us for salvation. Now what? But I thought we already received our salvation. You ever wondered that? It's talking about He's protected us for salvation. First of all, the salvation is it's a synonym for inheritance. Okay? But have you ever heard of that? Have you ever heard the Bible speaking of, you know, you were saved and then other times it'll say you're being saved? These type of things, this kind of language? Well, this... this um, he is, we're protected by the power of God through faith, for a, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the Scriptures, beloved, speak of having three things. It speaks of having been saved. And the word saved means delivered. Okay? That's what the word means. Delivered. So the, the Scriptures speak of having been saved or having been delivered. This is the doctrine of justification when we are delivered from the penalty of sin. Okay. Other places in Scripture, it'll, it'll use the language of being saved. That's just talking about our sanctification. We are being delivered. We are being saved from the power of sin in this life. And then finally, which is what our text is referring to today, glorification. We will be saved fully and finally. We will be delivered from the very presence of sin that we looked at a while ago. That's what this word is meaning. Romans 13.11 describes this. Listen to this. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. You hear the language there? He's talking to Christians. They've already believed. But he's speaking of salvation being nearer. It's this final glorification, this full inheritance that we're going to experience. And then, uh, yeah, the, the phrase at the end of verse 5 ready to be revealed. This salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, beloved, at his return. That's when everything will be full and final. At His return, we'll receive our resurrected bodies and be in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. Matthew 25, 34 is that day when all the nations will be standing before the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The unbelievers, the reprobate, the goats on His left, His children, His sheep, the believers, His elect, on the right. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit, there's the word, inherit the kingdom 
prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is when we will experience that salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so, our, our final point today, in case some of you were paying attention and you wondered, well, he skipped a lot of verse 3. The title of the message is A Living Hope, and he skipped right over it. Well, I saved it for the last part. Our God is blessed and worthy to be praised. Why? Because of our hope. Because of our hope. And we can see it back up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Really, this hope, guys, it's a theme in this letter. You can look at verse 13 in chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Down in verse 21. Who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. So we see this hope as a theme throughout this letter. Again, when we think about who he's writing to, he's wanting these persecuted believers to have hope. To have hope. The New Geneva Study Bible defines this hope as this. In the Bible, hope is not uncertainty or wishful thinking, but a confident expectation of future blessing based on facts and promises. Okay, let me, let me read that again. In the Bible, hope is not uncertainty or wishful thinking, but a confident expectation of future blessing based on facts and promises. This is the part I say for Michael and Stephen. I've got half of them here. Alright, so Michael, I'll talk to you. So I know Michael and Stephen, along with their dad, I don't know who all in the family, but they're TCU fans. We still love them. Right? We still love them. We're just having some fun. But think about this. We're going to try to, to look at what this word hope means and what it doesn't mean. Okay? So that definition I just gave you, it's not an uncertainty or wishful thinking. Now, when TCU and OU play this fall, Michael, okay, there's a certain kind of hope you and I can both have. You know, when our teams play, or, or, or Jamie, he's an Arkansas fan. I'm sure we might have some OSU fans in here, but <laughs> but we'll just talk about TCU and OU because TCU usually has a good team. OU's had a lot of good games with them. So you and I, Stephen, we can I can hope that OU is going to beat them. You can hope that TCU is going to beat them. But it's really a hope based on uncertainty and, and even wishful thinking at times, depending on how good our teams are. You know, when your team's not real good, and you say, I, I hope OU can beat you know, Alabama, or TCU can beat Oklahoma, or vice versa, a lot of times it's just wishful thinking, right? So, but we use the word hope. So that's not what it is. I think a better picture of what this hope is that we're looking at now think of it this way. If your mom tells you, kids, that 
I'm going to make your favorite breakfast in the morning. And man, you have a hope. You have a hope that when I get up, fill in the blank, pancakes, sausage, bacon, eggs, whatever it is, you have a hope, you have a confident expectation of a future blessing. Amen. Good stuff. God, oh, breakfast is so good. Based on facts and promises because you know your mom. You know your mom loves you. You know your mom's going to make you breakfast. If she said she's going to do it, obviously unless something come up that prevented that. But you have an expectation based on promise from somebody that you know, that you know is trustworthy, that you love, and who loves you. Big difference between that word, right? Those two ways we use the word hope. So really, that's, that's what we see here. It's not a, this hope that we have in this text here, guys, it's not a wishful uh, uncertainty, wishful thinking. That's not what it is, but it's based on facts and promises. A confident expectation from what our God has told us. Psalm 139.7 We can see this hope in the Old Testament as well. David says this, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in You. See, David knew his Lord. He knew his God. He knew he's trustworthy. And so he had a confident expectation of future blessing based on facts and promises of who God is. And in Lamentations 3.24, the prophet Jeremiah says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. He knew His God. He knew who His God was. And therefore, He had hope in Him. Certainty. And then what kind of hope is it, guys? In verse 3, it's a living hope. It's not just a hope, but it's a living hope. You could look at it like this. It's a living hope in the sense that it, it grows and increases in strength year by year. Right? As you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as you're sanctified, as you learn to trust Christ more, it's living in that way, an indicator of spiritual maturity. Have you guys ever been around an elderly saint? Somebody who walked with Christ 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and maybe they're close to death, and you see, you just see the gentleness, the peace. The confidence. They're ready to be with Christ. This living hope could be, could be talking about that. Those things are definitely true. But I think it's more so this living, it's a living hope because of who Christ is. Because in 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul tells Timothy, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Ultimately, He is our hope, right? And He is living. And we see it in the text right here. It says born again. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I think this living hope is dealing with the fact that our, our King is risen. He's alive. He is our living hope. Christ is our hope. It is a resurrected hope. Is the second thing we see under this. It's a living hope. It's a resurrected hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 
If you want to flip over there. Uh, verse 19, and then down verses 54 through 58. I'll give you a second, guys, if you want to turn there, because it's a few verses. But it's a resurrected hope. It's a resurrected hope. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Just think if Christ had not risen and all the sacrifices you make for Christ in this life, guys. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Right? But but look down in verses 54 through 58. But when this perishable... There's, there's our word, guys, that we was looking at earlier. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul is mocking death here, by the way. He says, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. You could even insert hope there. Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Really the same language Peter is using in this text, guys. You have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're under persecution, but know this, your King has risen. Acts 2.24 But God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Beloved, death could not hold Him down. And know this today. Death will not hold you down if you, have, if you are united to Him by faith. As the Scripture says, says, those who are united to Him went down into the grave with Him and came up out of the grave with Him. We are identified with Him. Death cannot hold Him down Death will not hold us down because we are united to the author of life and to His resurrection from the dead. Because we are united to Him by faith, listen to Ephesians 2.6, that God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we're already there in God's eyes. We're already seated with Him in God's eyes. That's our position. That's your identity in Christ right now. In God's eyes, it's as good as done. You are seated with Christ in heaven because we are identified with Him. We're just waiting for the full manifestation that we looked at earlier. We're waiting for the full manifestation of our salvation to be revealed when our risen, ascended Christ returns and gives us our resurrected bodies to live in the new heavens and the new earth. That is our hope. That was Peter, that's what Peter was trying to communicate to his readers, beloved, and that is 
our hope today. Christ is our hope. Our living Christ, He is our living hope. But if you are not united to Christ by faith, you don't have this hope. It's for those who are united to Him by faith. Identified with Him. That's why we use the language, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? If you're identified with Adam, you're identified still with death. Sin and death. Yours is a dying hope. It's a dying hope. Ours is a living hope in Christ. Yours is a dying hope if you're not in Christ. Job 8.13 It says, So are the paths of all who forget God and the hope of the godless will perish. So the hope that you think you have, it's going to perish. And it may perish today. When your heart gives out, that hope will perish. And listen to the way He describes the people. All who forget God. Do you realize that's what people do? They intentionally forget God. There's people that say, you know, I, I think about the, uh, the interview that, I don't know if any of you guys saw the interview Jeff Durbin did with the young lady. A couple different interviews. Interview slash debate. She was an atheist, um, you know, part of the LGBT, part of the far left. They had very, he was very kind and gracious, but her, throughout the interview, throughout the conversation, she just used the language, I, I'm, not, I'm not religious. And that's what the world uses, I'm not religious. That's not how God describes people. He doesn't say, he says, so the paths of all who forget God and the hope of those who are not religious will perish. No, he says, of the godless. Let's identify people with what, how God says you're either godly or godless. And in Proverbs 10.28, we see our two categories of people that we looked at in Psalm 1 a few weeks ago. The hope of the righteous is gladness, but the expectation of the wicked perishes. Not of the man who says he's not religious, but of the wicked. Your expectation will perish. The moment you breathe your last breath, that is a gift from God. Whenever He says it's time and your, and your heart stops beating, all of your expectations that you had will perish along with the rich man. It's over. It's done. There's no purgatory. There's no bargaining. It's done. Hell has no exits. It's done. Your expectation, your hope will perish. Ephesians 2.12 Paul writing to these Gentile believers about their former life, he says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is your only hope. Having no hope and without God in the world. And so if there is anybody here who that fits you, just know this, that you have no hope. There is no hope. You may deceive yourself into thinking there's hope, but it's going to perish. 
Your expectation will perish when the very one who gave you life, who created you, will say, time's up. The one who willingly, guys, He willingly went to the cross. He said, I lay down my life. The sovereign one. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own authority. He said, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. He willingly went to the cross. The Scriptures say, guys, in 2 Peter, that He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We don't, try to, we don't need to try to over-reform that verse. The Bible says that Christ is delayed in His coming because He's not willing that any would perish. He's waiting on sinners to repent. Do you realize that? God is patient. He's waiting on sinners to repent. But when His patience runs out, it's over. Come to Christ and find hope. Come to Him. Come to Him by faith. Come to Him and be, and be saved and have hope and have meaning and have purpose. Have a purpose for your life. It's found in Christ. He is a friend of sinners. He died for His enemies. We were His enemies. And He gave His life up as a ransom so that you would not have to perish. So that you would have hope. But beloved, for those who are in Christ, I just want to close with really what we already looked at. Have, have, there is hope, okay? We're not facing persecution yet. We do face trial, right? Everybody, everybody, the righteous and the wicked, we face hard times in this world. We lose loved ones. We lose jobs. We go through trials. Even, so even through these times, take comfort in these Scriptures, okay? Take comfort that this is temporary. This is temporary that we have an inheritance and it's reserved and it'll be there when you get there. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, You're so gracious. You're so kind in sending Your Son, Lord, so that we who at one time in our life, Father, shook our fist at You and said, no, thank You. We, we, we liked our independence. We liked our rebellion. Rather than submitting to You, a loving God, our, our very Creator, who came and put on flesh. And Lord, I just pray, Father, that You will cause many to be born again. That You will open eyes. God, that, they, that, that, that people will see the beauty of our Savior. The kindness of our God, which the kindness and the patience that leads men to repentance. Father, thank You for saving us. Thank You for these people who are here today, Lord, my friends and family in Christ. Father, I love them. Lord, I know that they're, they're Your beloved. You love them. And Lord, I just pray that we would reflect on these things, Lord, as we go throughout this letter. 
to these persecuted Christians, Lord, that, that we would build our faith muscles now, Lord. That we would be comforted in these truths, Father, that were meant for a persecuted church. Lord, that we will, that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of our, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love You and thank You and praise You. You are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, Amen.